Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. All right, Buffalo Bills fans, welcome to another episode of Breaking Buffalo Rumblings, but clearly an episode like none other. It's draft week. The 2020 NFL draft is coming up starting Thursday night, and we've pulled together a roundtable of the best Buffalo Bills podcasters and all the business. Uh, joining us today, we've got Greg Thompson from Cover One. Greg, how you doing this morning? Good morning, everybody. Uh, doing great. Looking forward to having some fun. Greg, why don't you tell everybody where they can find your great work online before we jump into things today? No, I appreciate it. Come on over to uh, CoverOne.net. This is uh, our time of year. All kinds of fun stuff going on. Video breakdowns of all the players. Just diving into everything there. I obviously focus on the, the Bills-specific side of things, but anybody who's looking for just general draft knowledge, just all kinds of fun stuff going on right now. So come on over, find me CoverOne.net, and on Twitter, at Greg Thompson. Always uh, looking to have fun. Right now, I've been going through watching Marvel movies for the first time, so that's been an interesting uh, journey so far. So uh, always something new and interesting. Now, it's been great to follow along with you, Greg, and appreciate you joining us today. Also on the podcast, you know I'm here from buffalorumblings.com and our podcast feed. From the Nick and Nolan show, it's Nick Bat and Bruce Nolan. Guys, how you doing this morning? Doing great, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Doing fantastic, man. Good to be here. All right. And why don't you tell everybody where they can find your stuff online as well? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. Also putting out pieces on a monthly basis at buffalorumblings.com and uh, just doing whatever comes my way and whatever tickles my fancy. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. If, you, uh, if people are familiar with you, Anthony, and they're not familiar with me, it's specifically they're trying to ignore me, which I understand that <laughs> because you can find my stuff all the same spots you find your stuff. You are actively trying to get away from me. If at this point you haven't seen any of my any of my work because you you're just too much of an Anthony Marino fan and the Marino and Bruce things just don't quite jive, in which case you're probably not a big fan of this podcast. But you can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive and at Buffalo Rumblings is where my work can be found. In a generation a, a generation ago, Marino and Bruce, those two things, Bills fans would be very familiar with there being a significant clash there. <laughs> well, complete blasphemy that uh, that anyone should be trying to avoid you or that I would be doing that as well. Our final guest today, you know his great work from the Locked on Bills podcast, the Draft Dudes, the DraftNetwork.com. Joe Marino, Joe, I'm glad you could be with us today as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, this should be a fun conversation, except for there's one question I, I'm not going to answer that is on the script. Listen, as we talk about some of these things, I, I think there's a few questions that we have. As I told these guys beforehand, this could be the greatest podcast in Buffalo Rumblings history, or it could be a complete shit show as we're all talking over each other and things get out of control. But I imagine as we go through, it'll be some great conversation again as we, we look forward to the 2020 NFL draft coming up this week. But one of the questions I do have for you guys, right, and, and we think of just years past, we look at Buffalo Bills drafts. I mean, we probably have one of those 
right? Those hills that we climbed upon, a draft take that we had that we can look back and just say, good gosh, that is one that, that went down in a, a ball of flames. You know, for me, look back to 2006, it was, it was clearly that Matt Leinert was going to be the next franchise quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, our version of Tom Brady, California kid coming, the storied career at USC. That was the hill I was looking to, you know, to, to climb upon and, and pound my fist and say, this needs to be the next quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. And I still remember um, I was actually in the car going to an event for work, driving out to Syracuse with my uh, my wife when I heard that the Bills made the selection for Dante Whitner. And I, I swear, we almost drove off the road because I just could not contain myself at that time. So um, to think that Dante Whitner ended up being a better pick for the Bills than Matt Leiner, we'll just leave for another podcast someday. But I'd love to hear from you guys if there's other draft takes that, you know, you kind of look at and say, listen, we can look in the rearview mirror and kind of poke fun at ourselves just a little bit. Bruce, why don't you go first and, and kind of share one of yours and then we'll get to the others. The original Bruce draft fail, the one that initially got me hooked on the NFL draft was I was very convinced that Rick Myrer was going to be just as good of an NFL quarterback as Drew Bledsoe because I was young and moronic and didn't understand how there could possibly be any nuanced differences between these two quarterbacks. And that failure actually is what spurred my love of the NFL draft. Rick Meyer was my original draft swing. Now, if you really want to go through all the draft misses, I, I mean, how much time do we have on this podcast? Is a two hour podcast feasible at this point, Anthony, for all the draft misses that I've had or I'm not, I'm not sure at this point, Bruce, but, but listen, I I've blocked the rest of the day and I've got nowhere to go. So <laughs> Last year, actually, I was convinced that the Buffalo Bills were going to love DK Metcalf. I was convinced that he had everything from a makeup standpoint that seemed to line up with the things that the Bills like. Now, we don't know if he if he wasn't on the Bills radar. Obviously, we don't know that, but he certainly wasn't on it to such a degree that I thought he was going to be on. I thought he would be in play at number nine overall for the bills. And obviously that didn't end up being the case. So that was a pretty significant swing and miss. So let's get something really recent, which is DK Metcalf last year. And then let's get something really old, which is Rick Meyer from 1993. Those are two great examples. Now, Joe, I'm guessing this is the question that you don't want to answer, but I think is, again, we've talked in the past, you, you know, we're not always going to be right, right. As we, we look at the draft and have some of our takes, is there something you would want to share with the group as uh, as kind of one of those misses that you've had for the Bills in years past? Speak for yourself, Anthony. I've never been wrong about anything with the <laughs> NFL draft. I'm not even sure this why this was on the script. Um, but definitely didn't miss on DK Metcalf. Jeez, Bruce. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I've got stuff for you. Um, since we're doing old and new, I was only going to talk about new, uh, but I'll start with my old. Uh, I loved Vernon Golston out of Ohio State. Uh, defensive end was drafted number six overall to the New York Jets. Hate to see it that he was a bust, but he was. And uh, what this came down to, this was one of my prime examples of probably the first time that um, I realized that physical traits don't uh, isn't the end-all, be-all when it comes to being able to be an effective football player. I mean, this guy was was everything you could dream up in terms of size and athleticism at a defensive end uh, position, and he was very productive in college. So, I mean, he had 14 sacks his senior or his junior year in 2007. I mean, I, I looked at this guy. I said, this guy checks all the boxes in terms of physical traits uh, and production, and I'm like, this guy's going to be like the next problem pass rusher in the NFL. Well, we all know that that didn't turn out, 
And it was a good example and and learning process for me in that moment. I was much younger in 2007 or whatever that, yeah, there's more to it there. there, You got to learn the game. You got to know the game and you got to know what matters in the NFL. And so uh, that was a good learning experience for me. The recent one that I'll tell on myself for is I had Josh Rosen as my QB one in 2018. And not that the, the book has been written on Josh Rosen, but it's pretty damn telling that he's been in the NFL for two seasons. Uh, he was a first round draft pick by the Cardinals in, in what number 10 overall in 2018. He was traded after one season. And then, uh, you know, the Miami Dolphins are obviously taking a quarterback on Thursday night. So you know, it, that doesn't look good for your uh, forecast in the NFL when at this point in your career, you've already been overlooked twice uh, by teams that gave up, you know, one team traded up and got a, got used a top 10 pick on them. And the other what traded a second round pick for him. So it, it says a lot. And I think for me, what it came down to was, I think his tape was good at UCLA. I think he has a good arm, but I, I think I, I was too willing to buy into being pro ready. I, in fact, I have a bad tweet out there that says that I believe that Josh Rosen is the most quarterback or most NFL ready quarterback I've watched since Andrew Luck. I didn't say he was the best quarterback prospect I've watched since Andrew Luck, but pro ready. And I, and I really believe that uh, he came from a pro style system at UCLA and was ready to step in right away in the NFL and take over and I think this is a good example of where as a media scout, I, I just don't have those opportunities to sit down with players and put them on the whiteboard and talk through what they do and don't know. And, and if I would have put him down on the whiteboard and found out that he's never identified a Mike linebacker before, well, I probably wouldn't have said that. All right. So I just went with the information I had um, and I put too much stock into pro readiness and I didn't necessarily, I wasn't creative enough to, to think about some of the the forecasts of the other physical tools that some of these other quarterbacks had, like a Lamar Jackson or even a Josh Allen uh, and, and even Pat, uh, uh, Baker Mayfield in terms of what he was able to do uh, despite it not being an NFL scheme there at Oklahoma. So that was a big learning experience for me, and and, and I, I think I have good reasons for why I, I, had, I came to that conclusion and, and certainly information and pieces of the puzzles I didn't have uh, but when I look at, at Josh Rosen as my QB1 in 2018, it's it's definitely standing out as a recent work. Joe, I feel like this was therapeutic for you right there, right? I'm, I'm glad that we had this segment in the show because you could not just open up to us, right, as part of the roundtable, but also all of the listeners to to have that moment. So, uh, so I hope you feel okay after uh, after sharing those misses. I mean, is everyone interested relate. in still talking to me about the draft? Are we good here? Or you uh, <laughs> starting Listen, off the draft conversation <laughs> with our worst draft takes, Anthony? What's it's all going about on second here, chances. Man? Listen, it's you you try to relate, right? When you talk about the draft, we all know that we've we've had plenty of bad takes in the past. Not, none of us know everything that's taking place and you go, you know, you share that you can be a little vulnerable here. I think that's okay. So, so Nick Bat, I would love to get your take on this as well. It's in many ways I relate to you, Nick, right? Like I'm not a guy like Bruce and Joe that is able to spend all the time evaluating the tape and and I look to the experts and so many of these things. From your perspective, though, as you look back at your you know, fandom with the Buffalo Bills, where's one of those big misses that you've had, at least as it relates to, uh, to a draft crush or a, a hot take as it relates to the Bills? Well, if I'm trying to get out of the responsibility for it the same style as Joe Marino, I guess I can say that, yeah, I'll just totally embrace that I don't know anything about the draft. I don't uh, follow it uh, closely, never really have until very, very recently 
and I, even now it's kind of humorous. I get tagged all the time in things with the people in this group on Twitter where people are like, what do you think about this prospect? And I, like, there was one thing that was funny earlier this season is that people were tagging me with stuff about the wide receivers before we acquired Stefan Diggs. And they were asking like, rugs or uh lamb or something like that and i was just like oh i'm not a big fan of rugs i'm more of a fan of wall-to-wall carpet right so like that's that's like the level of draft knowledge that i typically bring to the table i'm a i'm a curious person and i do listen to the people who i think are in the know and i who i whose opinions i respect and allow that to inform my own opinions but really, you know, be, because that's how I do things, if I'm ever wrong, it's really other people's fault. So um, <laughs> I, I think I, I will say that there's a couple of people who the Bills have acquired that I was really excited about. I will also echo. I do remember Matt Leinert in the uh, I think it was a Rolls Bowl. It was it was a bowl game. He was in his last season. He made an audible at the line of scrimmage, called a go route on the outside at the far side of the field, completed a pass in very tight coverage. And it, right then and there. I was like, this guy's going to be, this guy's going to be terrific. He's going to be incredible because of that one individual play and that one individual, uh, you know, action or behavior that he took. I was very, very excited whenever the Bills acquired uh, Dante Whitner in the draft and Paul Puzlesny. So I remember Marv Levy saying that uh, I think it was because of the Ravens and Ed Reed that if you wanted to be an elite team, you had to have a really high talent safety. And he said that that he that was his justification or one of his uh, one of his things that that in, that informed him on selecting Dante Whitner. And I was like, I, I, I took that hook, line and sinker, was very excited about that. And obviously, we know that 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 Dante Whitner didn't have the career that any of us wanted him to have in Buffalo. Another guy was Paul Puzlesny. Now, Paul is a little bit of a different situation my family and his family know each other and our, our parents are very close friends and things like that. So I was in my dorm room in college whenever we selected him and literally was jumping up and down on the bed that I knew I was, I, I you know, had a connection to a Buffalo Bills player. Uh, that was, that was really thrilling. And obviously, you know, Paul went on to have a, a pretty nice career, but um, his, his game speed and his coverage ability and stuff like that wound up always kind of being a, a bit of an issue for him in Buffalo and then in Jacksonville. So those are two guys who I was over the moon about that, uh, you know, didn't even finish their careers in Buffalo, let alone, you know, do everything that they wanted to while they were here. Nick, that's a great story with Paul Puzlesny. I don't know if you've ever shared that on the podcast before, but that was like a, that was good. I could see a young Nick bat jumping up and down on his bed in his, uh, in his dorm room at college there. Wearing the same outfit as today. <laughs> All good. All good. Greg, I'm, I'm sure you probably have, uh, you've been waiting anxiously to, to share one of your, your hot takes. I'd, I'd love to, to hear one of your misses, at least their Buffalo Bills drafts in the past. Yeah, I, I got to say five people on a podcast does not mesh with my ego and how often I want to <laughs> talk. So I'm really having to regulate here. Um, the the couple that come to mind, one, I, I, I'll echo one of the recent ones here based on some of the work done by uh, one of the writers over at the Draft Network and a host of the Draft Dude show, I was very high on Josh Rosen. So um, I was literally on my knees in my basement when the Bills traded up to seven chanting, Rosen, not Allen, Rosen, not Allen, Rosen, not Allen. Um, so I'll blame, I can't remember who it was, but I'll blame someone for that. Um, <laughs> going back, uh, one of my further back ones, I was certain that Cedric Benson was going to be the best running back in NFL history. 
um, and that he was just going to come and just rock people's world, that he was going to be a, a faster, better Ricky Williams. Uh, so that was a little bit off. From a Bills standpoint, um, I think this story has been told by a couple people, especially those who go through the car wash at ESPN when they joke about the guys that go through and go from show to show. And everyone talks about how EJ Manuel just impressed them beyond belief and how how mature and ready he was and that people took that intelligence, how well spoken he was, how professional he was, and used that to kind of glaze over some of the gaps in the film and to convince themselves that, oh, all of these off field intangibles will allow him to develop and, and grow quicker and make up for those gaps and that he was going to end up being great. And I, I was fully on board with that and convinced myself after hearing him talk and going through and convinced myself that the problems you saw in watching him play weren't going to be an issue and he was going to somehow miraculously overcome those. So that was one. And another one I always like to bring up is I was much higher on Tanner Vallejo than Matt Milano. When those two linebackers got picked <laughs> on day three, I was certain we had a steal out of these linebackers, but I have no idea who that Milano kid is. So yeah, there's always uh fun swings and misses. And I always do one on Twitter. I'll do, you know, kind of take your medicine Monday and I'll go back and find, uh, you know, hot takes that I was way wrong on. And it's, you know, it's no fun. If you can't have a little bit of uh, a little bit of fun poking at yourself for things that you were confident in, um, then I, I think you're not trying hard enough. You're not putting enough fun things out there if you're never missing and, and able to, to have some fun with it. So I think segments like these are fun to, to be able to lay, lay bare. Well, I appreciate all you guys sharing with this. And while we might not have confidence in picks that we've made in the past or projections that we've had. You know, as we shift now to the 2020 NFL draft, the, the first, I guess you could say, real topic I have for you as it relates to this year is around Brandon Bean. And of course, it's uncertain times with pro days being canceled and the lack of pre-draft visits. And there's not so many of those rumors flying around, right, that there seems to have been in years past. But now the Bills have made the playoffs two out of the last three years. Brandon Bean at the helm, I you know still remember the day when he you know traded away Ronald Darby and Sammy Watkins, and you know you started to think, good gosh, is is this team gonna gonna be going in the tank? And and, and really since that, what the team has done over the last three years, I myself have an infinite amount of trust in him. But you know I'm curious to get everyone's take here. And Joe, why don't we start with you? Just kind of your impression and level of trust as it comes to Brandon Bean heading into the draft. I mean. Has he earned the benefit of the doubt that no matter what he does come the draft, that, that Bills fans should should have that same level of confidence in him? Interesting question. I, I certainly believe that Brandon Bean has done a very good job as the general manager of the Buffalo Bills and has done well to hit on draft picks and get immediate returns from those draft picks. And he's built a very competitive roster, a very complete roster, in, in my view, uh, very little in the way of glaring issues as we approach this draft. Um, I, I don't think every, I, I mean, I, I have a hard time with just whatever Brandon Bean does, we have to be okay with. I, I think that's boring. Uh, I think that's missing the opportunity to have good discussions about what better ideas could have been. Um, but for the most part, I mean, in terms of earn your trust, yeah, I think in two years he's been able to do that. But at the same time, I don't think you, you should just sit back and say, well, I personally don't agree with that, but because Brandon Bean did it. Um, you know, it's not worth criticizing or it, that's the ultimate trump card. You don't just play the trump card because uh, because Brandon Bean did it. I think it's OK to disagree and have discussions about 
uh, moves that he makes or draft picks that he makes. So um, I, I guess I guess my answer is yes, we should be confident in Brandon Bean, but um, it's not one of those situations where um, things can't go wrong. I mean, look at the, the Saints in 2017 and what they were able to do in that draft and what they did in 2018. I mean, they literally had the best draft you could ever assemble in 2017, and in 2018 they had very little to show from those draft picks. So it's just as much as uh, Sean McDermott will sit at press conferences and tell you that it's a week-to-week league, it's a game-to-game league, it's a year-to-year draft thing. And so, I mean, Brandon Bean's done a good job in two drafts and two off-seasons building this roster, but let's not sit here and act like, things can't go south and that there is some regression to the mean probably when it comes to hitting on draft picks because he's done uh, so well with uh, with his initial work. Nick, what are your thoughts here? I mean, in, in light of what Joe said, right, it, and all of that made perfect sense, you know, do you have a different perspective or do you find yourself kind of agreeing with the, the stance that he shared there? I'm sympathetic to people who say that they they believe whatever Brandon Bean says or does, and it's it's mostly because um, I think that so I I don't I agree with Joe first of all let me just say that I agree that it is boring if you just say well whatever the whatever the team does is right and we're all just going to be company men and and fans are all going to be you know people like that. What do, I mean, there is no conversation. There is nothing to, there is no, I mean, what are we all providing content for? So of course we have to be able to discuss it. I, I am sympathetic to fans who just want to give Brandon Bean the benefit of the doubt, because at this point, considering what we have suffered through as Bills fans, we are seeing the first significant level of competency uh, at this level with with a plan and and actually fixing a significant problem and trying to position themselves for long term ability and, and flexibility and success, we're seeing something we haven't seen before, and so that is going to I think put people in a position, especially if they aren't doing the work themselves, where they want to give Brandon Bean the benefit of the doubt. They want to just take whatever he says as gospel and and and, and you know um, full wholly endorse it. I do think that. It just is going to come down to whether or not fans also have other voices whom they like and they trust. If you also trust and like and believe the things that Greg and you and Joe and Bruce say, then when they disagree, all of a sudden you've got a little bit of dissonance and you got to you got to pick your poison and, and kind of decide and make a choice where, where you individually fall in your opinion. But I, I do understand where the people are coming from who say that they only um you know, they just want to whatever Brandon Bean wants to do is fine by them, right? We see that all the time on Twitter. Whatever Brandon Bean wants to do is fine by them. Whatever, whoever they want to sign, however much they want to sign them for, all of that stuff. I do think that's an incredibly. If we all adopt that, it is incredibly boring, and it's it's not what we're here to do. But I I get it. I just think that there needs to be you know. Those fans need to decide, uh, is there anyone else whose opinion you trust? <laughs> is there anyone else's opinion that could be contrary that you would also care about? And sometimes right. sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. Uh, and they just haven't put in the time and the hours to listen to all of us talk about things and, and plead our case and build our credibility. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm sympathetic, but I, I agree with Joe ultimately that that's a, that is a, a boring uh, that it's a boring end game if that's what we're working towards. 
Marvel. There's, an, there's me, a Marvel plug for you, uh, Greg and, and Marino. <laughs> that was uh, that was perfect. There. I'm going to shift this a, a little bit to question for. I'll go Greg next, and then Bruce. I mean, is there a recent move that Brandon Bean has made? I guess that you know truly had you shaking your head as it as it took place, right? Maybe thinking to yourself, "Gosh, that that doesn't really add up for me." And whether it worked out well or you kind of proved you right with that, I would just be curious to get your take with with that, Greg. I, I think that's a, a good way to look at it, and I, I think both Joe and, and Nick brought up the right tone. So it's he's done enough to earn that respect. And when you look at a couple things, I know that uh, Bruce and I, you know, we dive down the financial side of things more often. So I'll use the um, Mario Addison. Uh, contract as an example i think both of us were equally excited i think both of us uh predicted that move i think nick and, and joe certainly saw that writing on the wall as a very likely one and then when the numbers came out it made you step back and go huh that's more than i expected that's a little odd um and you know same thing you know is is 4.5 million dollars a lot for a special teams guy in Tyler Medikevich? Yeah, that's a little bit. Um, are we going to get six million dollars worth of value out of AJ Klein? I think some of those kind of things, I've leaned towards language that those are luxuries we have because of the window that we're not into at extensions. But I still consider them luxuries. Like they're not what I would deem great value. Now it doesn't mean they can't perform that way, but from what I saw on the open market, from what I predicted, and I think pass rusher market, when you saw Robert Quinn's deal come out and it was a monstrous number, all of a sudden Mario Addison's number made a little bit more sense. Um, why we haven't restructured Trent Murphy is because of that pass rusher market. His agent knows he can get a higher number than what we offered in restructure. I, I believe that firmly. Um, so I think that there are things like that where I don't know that there were any that I outright just was confused by and completely disagreed with. And I'll, I'll add one little anecdotal piece that when I'm explaining to some folks about the blind faith in being, and I think that's not healthy, but there's a few things where I've explained it that, Hey, if Bean and McDermott do this, I will believe in it more because of it being an informed decision. And it, it goes both ways. When some fans were clamoring for, hey, why haven't we brought in Devin Funchess? Well, he's now had two full off seasons where he was completely available. Both times we went out and acquired high-priced, talented wide receivers, three of them, over this stretch, and he was never even brought in for a visit. That tells me that they had an informed opinion on whether he deserved to be looked at. And the same way, I'll use Mario Addison again, that if we bring in and before he's brought in and we're asking the questions of, hey, what does a 32-year-old pass rusher still have in the tank? His consistency the last four years is great, but I'm a little bit nervous about that. Well, when you have Eric Washington on staff and you have you know, the informed opinion of McDermott and Bean from their history together, when they sign him, I think there's legitimate confirmation in that because you can feel assured that they have a more informed opinion. So when they do those two moves in either direction, it can give you, I think, legitimate reason to have faith in that decision because you know they have more information than what's available to myself or most people on the outside looking in. So I think that there's some pieces like that where I'll use 
their decision when I say, hey, if they're on board with that, I'm going to believe that they have those couple other points of information I'm curious about and that I'll have faith in that decision because they have further information. So it's not necessarily blind, you know, just pure blind faith and, hey, anything Brandon Bean does to, you know, turns to gold because it doesn't. Obviously, there's going to be misses and we've seen him restructure some of those misses recently. Um, but I do think there's a few things like that where you can have some informed opinion on that without it being pure blind faith. No, and that's a great point. Now, Bruce, I want to get your take on this as well. Um, I have a guess. I know where, where you're going to go with this, but um, you know, same question for Greg, right? Any of those those signings and moves by Bean that, you know, you say, hey, I, I believe in what he does, but this one I'm I'm scratching my head a little bit here. I think the the one that was the hottest topic for me last offseason was the Cody Ford pick. And I I didn't love the Cody Ford pick. I didn't hate the Cody Ford pick. I said I have concerns about it because I think if he's a tackle, I disagree with the labeling. And if he's a guard, I think he's redundant. That was my kind of uh, short elevator speech when it came to Cody Ford. And the thing that cracks me up is that people who have never watched a Cody Ford snap in their entire lives can yell at you on social media and say, well, I trust Brandon Bean over you. Oh, good. You should trust Brandon Bean. That's great. He's done wonderful things. But Brandon Bean is a professional because he has a higher probability of getting it right than I do. That's the reason why he's paid dollars, lots of dollars to do it. That doesn't mean there will never be occasions when I'm right and he's wrong. That's going to happen. There are plenty of cases where draft Twitter is right and a GM is wrong. Now, obviously, the GM is paid because there's hope that there's a higher probability of getting it right. But the fact of the matter is, there are people out there who put in the time so that they're allowed to have opinions. They're allowed to have opinions that don't line up with your team, in fact. And your you know, pseudo-fanaticism that comes along with blindly accepting everything the team does, is it, quite frankly, it's intellectually insulting, is what it is. It's intellectually insulting because you're saying that I'm not allowed to have an opinion that's adverse of your GM. And mind you, you probably don't even know who these players are in the fourth and fifth round. You might not have even watched them, but the second your team picks them, they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And anyone who says otherwise is like a, a heretic. It is, it is strange to me that we're not allowed to have opinions that don't line up with what the GM necessarily thinks. And I think that's hilarious because I think that Brandon Bean has done a great job. And I think that we have a probability at this point when he makes a move that it's more likely than not going to be at least reasonable. There are some that have not worked out overly well. Obviously, the Trent Murphy thing didn't go the way people wanted it to. The you know, the, the Starla Tule contract obviously got restructured. And there are some moves that you know, okay, maybe, you know, Tanner Vallejo, obviously a pick, you know, later on pick didn't, didn't flame, didn't happen at all. And so for goodness sake, you know, Sean McDermott picked Zay Jones. There are things out there traded up for Zay Jones. There are things out there that aren't going to work and that's okay. But if we're not even willing to have any dissenting discussions, then what is the point? Like, what are we even doing here? Now, if somebody wants to get personal with it and go nuclear and say, well, this Brandon Bean's the worst GM in the history of mankind because he picked Cody Ford and traded up for him. Okay, well, then, yeah, let's let's jump on that person for the tenor because they're clearly at that point losing the forest for the trees. And I get that. But the idea that there can be no dissenting opinions and there can be no possible idea, the greatest coach in the history of the NFL, Bill Belichick, 
isn't good when drafting receivers. He's not. And God forbid you say something about that on Twitter because the Patriots fans will come at you because they can't even fathom the idea that there isn't perfection there. And that's the thing I don't understand. There's a probability of being higher, but nobody bats a thousand. Nobody. I don't. Brandon Bean doesn't. Bill Belichick doesn't. Bill Walsh didn't. Ron Wolf didn't. Nobody bats a thousand. There has to be, for the law of large numbers says there has to be a miss. Why can't this one be the miss? We're not even willing to listen to the possibility that this one could be a miss. And so that's the thing that really cracks me up about these discussions. And I find respectful dissenting opinions, I find them fascinating because obviously if I am a positive opinion about something, then if there's a negative opinion about something, I want to hear it because it it makes my opinion more well-rounded. And if we're willing to do that, then I think it's better off. But some reason we're not willing to do that when it comes to our own team. Nick, I know you wanted to jump in here. Why don't we have Bruce check his blood pressure real quick while uh, while you jump in? Well, you know, nobody bats a thousand except for the Joe Marino. That's that was all I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nick, Mister Perfect, Mister Perfect, this is. I just just feel like I'm regurgitating things I've heard in the last thirty minutes. So that's all. Peppy well, listen, I, get things wrong there, so. <laughs> That's right. good old pep over there, Bruce, I, I appreciate your take with, with a lot of this though. Right. And, and I know as we, we talk about it in, in certain pieces, I for sure thought you were going to go with the signing of Josh Norman, right. That that was going to be one of those pieces that for so many fans, they look to the Carolina connection. It's something they glom onto. I don't have as much of a problem with it. But the Norman signing, right, that was one of those where you think to yourself, okay, was that the one that stood out? I thought that's where you're going to go with this, and I'd love to get your take, at least as it comes to that, because I imagine you have some feelings there as well. I do. I, I, I truly believe Josh Norman is washed. Now, I would love to be able to be proven wrong at this point, but Josh Norman was a markedly below average athlete when he was drafted, and that was nine years ago. At this point, I'm not sure he can run anymore. That's really, and I understand that's a very, very strong take, but I'm... As far as I'm concerned, I'm operating under the assumption that he's not going to give us anything. If he does, he might give us Levi Wallace level play, which means CB2 is still a problem. So I I get the idea that we're trying to make things fit nice and easy in a puzzle. We want to say, okay, well, Sean McDermott's defense was the defense he was running when he played at a crazy well, a crazy high level back in 2015. And so we're going to get a reasonable facsimile of that. But the fact of the matter is, even in other years when he was playing in Sean McDermott's scheme, he didn't necessarily give you a reasonable facsimile of that. that. There's a chance that Josh Mc, Josh Norman at this point was uh, had one really amazing year, one good year, one eh, okay year, and then the rest of the years weren't good. Like Josh Norman has not shown consistent play even when he was in the right system for him, and that was years ago. So I think there is a higher probability that Josh Norman is a colossal bust than it is that he's a good player. And I understand, again, that's a crazy, I brought all my hot takes for this particular podcast. I don't know why I reserved them for this particular podcast, but maybe I'm just really tired from staying up super late doing draft stuff. But I think that the the overwhelming mentality that we refuse to admit that it's even possible that it could be a bad move. And really, it's a probability calculation. That's what this is. My personal opinions are based on probability calculations, and everyone else's is too, because we're willing to admit that nothing is 100 or zero, right, in football. Nothing. 
Nothing is impossible in zero. Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. There's nothing impossible in football, but there's probabilities. And if I think that the overwhelming probability is that Josh Norman is going to not be a good enough player to be reasonable at CB2 this year, then we just want to we just want to jump all over people because Brandon Bean did it. But here's the funny thing. If Marv Levy did it and we were over Marv Levy, or if Tom Donahoe did it and we were over Tom Donahoe, we wouldn't have that same thing. Well, you know, I understand giving him more of the benefit of the doubt, but you don't just go to a hundred percent. Well, there's a zero percent probability of he's of him not working out. Okay. Or, well, you know, it's it's only it's only one year six million. Okay, well, Kevin Johnson signed for a very similar contract. You know, it's roughly three and a half, can earn up to six with playing time incentives and things like that. And I think Kevin Johnson's a better player than Josh Norman. So am I allowed to be upset now? Like, like when when can I when am I allowed? Like, why don't you tell me out there, you know, Twitterverse, tell me when I'm allowed to be like pessimistic, like ever? Because if the answer is never, then I don't think you're being intellectually honest. There's there's a point that I want to make here that, that Bruce said earlier, and I know we're here to talk about the draft, so we can pivot from this at your at your discretion, Anthony, but this is the last thing I'll say about it. At the very beginning of this thing about about when Bruce was talking about Josh Norman, is he said, I think Josh Norman is is washed, but I would happily or something like that be proven wrong. Everyone in this room right now has the benefit of we probably would all rather be wrong if it means the bills are successful than the alternative. At the same time, we are all in a community, especially on Twitter, for example, where we are talking with people who are not bills fans, but who also have NFL and football opinions. And those people maybe don't want to be wrong or aren't as willing to be wrong as everyone in this room would be because for them, the bills being good or not being good doesn't really make it doesn't really matter to them. And so I think that's one thing that we're kind of circling here is that everyone who's in this room could say whatever we want about a move that Brandon Bean makes. But at the end of the day, both us and the people who might be upset with us are both ultimately wanting Brandon Bean to be right. That's what we ultimately want. We have our opinion, which we express, but we want Brandon Bean to be right. The people who are constantly, you know, uh, picking and poking at the bear at uh, at Josh Allen and, and Bill's Mafia about Josh Allen are not people who probably share that particular characteristic. And there's a difference that is happening in the draft whenever, you know, Josh Allen, this all stems back to him being selected where he was in the draft by the bills and such. So that's one little detail that's, that I think is an important, you know, devil that we, that we should reckon with, or at least keep in mind as we talk about the frustration that people don't like whenever we say something that disagrees with whatever decision Brandon Bean makes. Nick, that's a great point, and I think it helps us transition the conversation a little bit, too, as we do talk a bit more about the draft, right? We all know that Brandon Bean has been one to to look to trade up in the draft. We saw it in 2017 
as it related to, or 2018, sorry, with Josh Allen and Tremaine Edmonds. And of course, last year with Dawson Knox making the move there and moving up to get Cody Ford. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out to the group now and we can kind of jump in as it, as it goes with this. But as we talk about the possibility for the Bills to trade up in the 2020 draft, of course, they don't have the first round pick after the Stefan Diggs trade. Talk to me about your level of comfort, right? Based on the holes that the team needs to fill that they can look to address during the draft, but having picks 54, 86, 128 and moving down. I mean, when you talk about trading up, how aggressive would you look to see Brandon Bean make? And I mean, what kind of level would you have comfort, I guess, as it comes to that? Greg, why don't you jump in first? I I think that it's all a measure of multiple small moves. I think that when... You know, I think some fans are talking about, oh, can we get into the back end of the first round? You know, obviously those trade value charts are all taken with a grain of salt. There's been some updated ones recently. Um, I pr- particularly used Rich Hill, who did an adaptation off Jimmy Johnson's chart and take more recent history. And it's from some logic from Bill Belichick. And it, it lines up a lot more with recent trades over the last 10 years of what the value is. If you take every single one of our picks from two through round seven, all seven picks combined, you get up to about pick 31. So just to let people know, if we took every single pick, that's all the further you would go. So I don't think that we're going to be making these enormous leaps from a value standpoint. However, I think that any of the trades you've seen from uh, you know, from Brandon Bean in the past has been when he's seen a coming drop-off in tier at a talent level for a position group that he's interested in. And I've referenced it on other shows to look at the linebackers that went after Tremaine Edmonds, the tight ends that went after Dawson Knox, the offensive linemen or tackles that went after Cody Ford. When he's shown those moves, it's because he's seen the last of a group that he evaluates together. So I think it's much more likely we see multiple small moves and maybe not even in the second. But if we did in the second, it would be maybe up to pick, you know, using the fourth rounder to go up to pick 47 or 48. I think it's more likely we see multiple moves in that in the third round we see one of those top running backs we see cam Akers or clyde edwards hilaire falling to pick 75 and all of a sudden we jump from 86 to 75 because we don't think it's going to make it to us or we're in the fourth round and we're shocked that michael ojimudier is starting to fall and we don't want to wait to 128 and he's still there at 115 and we jump from 128 to 115 and those are the kind of moves you can make by giving up a fifth or a fifth and a sixth or a sixth and a seventh because I don't know that we have seven roster spots for rookies. So I think it makes sense for us to come away with four or five players here. But I think it's much more likely that we pick at 54, we make a small move up in the third, we make another small move up in the fourth, and then we still have a remaining fifth, and we walk away with those four picks or maybe a fifth pick, and they're smaller moves. So I think some fans have a little bit of um, aggressive mentality that, oh, we're going to jump back into the tail end of the first round where it likely costs us next year first. I don't see any scenario where Brandon Bean is giving up back-to-back first-round picks. So I think we will see some moves. I think Brandon Bean's um, tenure has shown that. I think it fits with the roster spots. I think that it's likely some of those premium positions they're looking for will fall that way, but we'll see smaller moves and more likely a little bit later than what fans are thinking. You know, one thing I'll jump in here, we talk about this trade-up possibility, which is worth our discussion because Brandon Bean's shown a, a very obvious willingness to move up for his guys and his comments that he made this offseason about 
Um, his tendencies certainly affirm that he likes to move up. And what's challenging though, is when you, when you start to really piece this together and, and I think Greg did a good job of, of talking about, uh, ideas and what this could look like. But I mean, if you, if you take the, uh, the trade value chart that was put out by, uh, Syracuse.com, uh, where Ryan Talbot and Matt Perino are part of the bills coverage there. If you, if you take their fourth round pick one twenty eight and you add it to 54, that gets you about five spots up in the second round. So unless you want the bills to part with their third round pick, um, you know, to get up 20 spots or so into the, into the second round, you're, you're getting into some hairy situations in terms of really depleting your opportunity to add a couple of meaningful players because it's just going to cost you something. So I don't know that the trade-up happens in the second round. I do think it's likely that it could happen in the third round or back into the third round or higher in the fourth round. I do think we can expect to trade. I just don't know how likely that is at 54 if that's going up. Maybe we need to be more open to the eye uh, idea of it, of it being a trade back and then moving up with some of the ammunition that he's acquiring. I think that one of the things that we should count when it comes to trading up is I think we should count the Stefan Diggs trade as one of those for this offseason because Brandon Bean has historically done it twice. You know, we did it two times in the first draft, did it two times in the second draft. We might only see one of them this draft because you might be able to count the Stefan Diggs trade, which is essentially a trade up from 18 from 22 to 18. And so I wonder if we'll only see one. And I'd love to see Brandon Bean facilitate that move with a trade back from 54. But, you know, very similar to the Dave Gettleman scenario, he's never traded back ever. So I don't know if we're necessarily going to see it, but I wouldn't be surprised to only see one, whether that's fourth to third or third to higher third or something like that. I would be surprised to only see it one time because I don't think the level of recklessness to come out of come out of this draft with three players, for example, I don't think that level of recklessness is in him. I do think he's aggressive, but you know, Mike Ditka level trade away your draft to go up to 31 to get some one player that's going to be your shining glory, you know, one shining moment of the 2020 NFL class. I don't think that's in him. I wouldn't be surprised to only see one this particular. And just like Joe said, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a third to a higher third or a fourth to a third. So now let's talk about pick 54, right? I mean, this year is so much different than the past. I mean, obviously, we're all happy that Stefan Diggs is a member of the Buffalo Bills. But you think back to the 2019 draft, hey, you're picking ninth. It's it's easy to identify 9, 10, 11, 12 players that you could see, you know, joining the Bills and, and what you'd be happy with. Now, as you get to this point, right, you're talking about pick 54, maybe the possibility to trade up, not as high as, as you would look. Again, I'll throw this out to the group. I mean, is there a guy with pick number 54 that is, that is call it your draft crush, right? And somebody that's going to be in that, in that range. Like there might not be a guarantee that they're going to be there at 54, but someone that would be a, a reasonable take that you would look at it. So, I mean, I'll throw this out to the group. I mean, is there someone that, you know, who is that player? If, if the bills are on the clock at this point, you identify it, say, that's the guy that I would want with the 54 pick. Who wants to go first? I, I mean, I'd like, I certainly have takes on this. Um, Obviously, I'd love for Brandon Bean to get one of the cornerbacks that I really like. You know, it's hard to gauge where the NFL is on some of them, like a Christian Fulton uh, or Jeff Gladney or a, a A.J. Terrell from Clemson. If one of those types of players were available, I would want him to move up to get them. Um, but when we talk about just sitting there at 54, I have to be real realistic about my options. And when I think about where the value is going to be, as weird as this sounds – to say, I think it's at running back. And you look through this 
roster and and you try to find where the glaring issues are. And to me, one of them is RB2. Right now, and Bruce has said this a lot, you know, you're looking at 150 to 200 touches for TJ Yeldon right now. I think that is like sirens going off type uh, opportunity to improve the team. And we know that Brandon Bean has said multiple times that the objective and goal this offseason was to put the team in position to be able to score more points. And he wants touchdown makers and all of those types of things. And certainly Stefan Diggs helps, but I don't think that's the entire answer because you've not improved your offensive backfield yet. And TJ or <clears throat> Devin Singletary is ex- exciting in terms of being the lead back or kind of a 1B, 1A type situation, but you didn't get TJ Yeldon dressed over Frank Gore in the back half of 2019 because Frank Gore was a better downhill runner. That's a pretty, I mean, look, we know that they signed him Yeldon to a two-year deal. Brandon Bean, Brandon Bean has sung the praises of TJ Yeldon this offseason, but I don't know that we should be fully buying into what he's saying there because this looks like low-hanging fruit when it comes to an opportunity to improve the offense and get a difference maker in terms of somebody that can touch the football. And, you know, there's five really good backs in this year's class, and I think the Bills are in good shape to land one of them at 54. It's what I think they should do, and it's what I hope they do. Greg, I know you wanted to jump in there. Why don't you share your thoughts? Sure. I'm going to actually – it's almost a cop-out in the way of looking at the combination of what Brandon Bean has put together this offseason – I think that taking people, I think Joe and, and I know and uh, both Nick and and Bruce have shared similar sentiments about you know when you take running backs, when it's worth it doing that, and the fact that most of us have come around on that idea to be like, well, I, I guess it makes sense because he's filled so many other spots. So my cop out of an answer is, I just want it to be one of those obvious universal values. Now whether that happens to be, I know you know. Joe mentioned Jeff Gladney or somehow Yeter Gross Matos or we're not sure why Denzel Mims is still there or, hey, why is Josh Jones still on the board or, you know, any of those other, you know, top talents that just everyone is going through there. I even brought it up on in our, our Slack channel as we were talking about it. You know, if all of a sudden Patrick Queen is on the board at 54 and I'm just going like, well, I mean... I guess you can't really turn that down. We'll figure out how to use it and just let him compete with AJ Klein. Like, I I don't know. I want it to be an obvious universal pick that all of us are sitting there at pick 52 and pick 53 just saying, okay, please don't take him. Please don't take him. Please don't take him. And then that obvious guy falls and everybody's excited about it because I think that's the kind of position that Brandon Bean tried to set himself up in when you fill so many holes. I, I tried to temper expectations on free agency going into this year, and the man went out and has added 12 more players to the roster. It's unbelievable. Like I I, I was thinking he was going to be much more conservative with how crazy it was last year, literally adding 20, and that this year he goes back out and he signs 11 and trades for Stephon Diggs. It's just an unbelievable willingness to bring in depth and talent and let people compete in that we're not sure who offensive linemen seven, eight, and nine are, but there's a chance one of them could start. And just having that kind of flexibility opens it up that all I want is it for it to be a universal value that all of us are excited about and that we're not saying, oh, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that guy was a late second, early third round pick, but hopefully he's a, a fit in our scheme and we can kind of talk ourselves into why it's an okay pick. I want it to be somebody that we all had a first round grade on and whether it's an exact fit as, you know, where we value our needs of cornerback or pass rush or running back, that would be great if it both lines up that it's an awesome value and what our most highest perceived need is. I just want it to be someone everybody can be excited about because it fell right for us and that it's a, a value that we're all waving the flag for. Nick and Bruce, I know that you guys have some thoughts here as well. Why don't you jump in? Because I know, uh, you know, as we've talked in the past, there's, there's certainly some names that come to mind for you. I have a I have a question actually for Joe real quick before we go on. So Joe, would you really rather take a running back over Jeremy Chin if he was there? Ah, oh, it's so interesting. Um, maybe. Um, I love Jeremy Chin, and I I gave you a hell of a speech about him on our podcast together last week on the Nick and Nolan show. But I think there are some relative unknowns in terms of his projection to the next level in a role like that, the Bills' ability to actually implement a player like that into their defense. And, um, you know, I don't know how much of a year one impact it is, but I do think that everything I said, I believe, and that he can help you match up with some of these offenses that are going to be in the way of the Bills winning the AFC, which is the goal. And, and um, you know, it's, it's kind of those unknowns versus, okay, right now you're going to give the ball to TJ Yeldon 150 times. And like, I'm not saying TJ Yeldon's the worst football player in the world, but the word that I always go back to when it comes to TJ Yeldon is that he's tackleable. And we know he's not a good downhill runner and his value is in the passing game. And the bills don't do a good job of getting running backs involved in the passing game. So as much as we want to see that happen, I don't, I just don't know what the value in TJ Yeldon at RB two is, especially because he's not a very effective special teams player. And so they've got Taiwan Jones to be the effective special teams player that dresses as a running back. And I think you have a chance to get a dynamic football player to touch the ball more in your offense. That's going to keep the offense on schedule. That's going to help you, you know, convert third downs and score more points. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think obviously you guys did in a wonderful conversation, the Nick and Nolan show about running backs and do they matter and those types of things. They do matter where they don't matter is paying them tons of money for their second contract. And if you can have a, a, a backfield with uh, Jonathan Taylor and Devin Singletary or Cam Akers and Devin Singletary to have two guys that are really dynamic touching the football is going to open up more options and it's going to help your offense be more consistent. And, and that's something that I can subscribe to and, and believe in, you know, probably just as much as I could the idea of, of that X factor on defense like a Jeremy Chin. Joe, I have a question that I'll, I'll spin it to Bruce first, and then you could chime in after it. You guys had an awesome discussion on, on a, your recent show going over cornerbacks and different fits and who, what were translatable skills. And, and as you go through those things, and there was a point that I, I think I had a different perspective on versus where our roster composition is. And I think it probably skews towards our valuations of how serious the day one need is at cornerback two. And I, I think maybe I'm a little bit more comfortable with the safety net of Josh Norman and, and Levi Wallace than, than where you and, and Bruce are. But it came up, and I think it's similar with Jeremy Chin as what my thoughts were for Trayvon Diggs. And that players like that, 
where everyone seems to agree in the, you know, high end physical skill set, long term potential risk and whether it translates that I almost think that we've set ourselves up from a roster standpoint to be able to take that swing because the upside was there. And I know, Bruce, you brought up the reference of uh, the Dawson Knox type pick and that it, I think that the position premium between cornerback and tight end makes sense from a late third to a late second that you would still possibly want to take that kind of swing. And that with the safety net of already having Josh Norman versus uh, Levi Wallace, that if Trayvon Diggs isn't ready day one, but we're bringing him into a spot where I think fairly universally everyone believes in our defensive back coaching, our ability to get the most out of their skill set, but we're now introducing a higher end athlete with more upside, but might need a minute to do that. I almost wonder, is that worth taking that kind of pick, even if we're sacrificing knowing that we may not get that value in 2020, but it may be higher than the long-term value of, I know you guys brought up Bryce Hall and Michael Ojemudie, who maybe are much more translatable day one, but maybe don't have the long-term potential. Do you think that's worthwhile, or do you still value the certainty knowing that, hey, I know what I'm getting here, and I think you you lovingly use the term boring. Um, is that worth it to do that, or do you think there is merit to to my my point of we've set ourselves up to take more of those upside swings because of the depth on the roster. I think if I felt better um about Norman Wallace and EJ Gaines, specifically if I felt better about them for availability for 2020 and 2021, having them be a scenario where I'm not comfortable that they're going to give us better CB2 play overall than we got in 2019 plus none of them are really set up to be the starter in 2021 either. Those two things combined make me less inclined to take a swing on a long-term project at 54 at corner. I understand when they do, and I can totally see the line of thinking as to why you would be willing to do that, why you'd be willing to take a Trevon Diggs at 54. Like, I get it. I understand why that you think, you know what, we have done an excellent job of developing defensive backs. And if you're going to take a high upside swing on someone, then by all means, let's do it. I'd feel more comfortable doing it if we had someone I said, yes, I absolutely think they can hold down CB2. Now, you compare that with someone who's my draft crush at 54. And if you were to get there, I, I am coming around to the running back thing. By all means, and I'm not going to spoil my particular mock draft, my predictive mock draft that's dropping on Buffalo Rumblings next week and in the pod with Nick, but I've come around on running back concepts, but but if Jalen Johnson's there at 54 by some act of God, oh man, um, I'd probably take him over any of the five running backs. I made a, a kind of a hot take with Nick. I'd probably take my CB6 over my RB1 um, just because of how concerned I am about CB2. And I think that we can find uh, an RB2 in the third round. I think we can find an RB2 in the fourth round, but we probably can't find a walk-in CB2 guy. I think Michael Ojemudi is probably the bottom, the bottom last gasp you have at finding someone who could walk in and potentially be a CB2, you know, day one. Jalen Johnson is someone who I'm not sure gets the, the flashy, sexy sort of evaluation that he probably earned, but you know, if you look at that Utah team, very, very low key, people forget that Utah team was one game falling on their face away from being a playoff team. If you look at some of the draftable players from that Utah team, 
this year, it is staggering the level of defensive prowess, most notably, that the Utah team is putting into the NFL draft this year. And Jalen Johnson being, in my opinion, chief amongst them. Jalen Johnson's one of those players where I feel completely comfortable with him as a professional cornerback for the next decade. I just think that he moves like a professional cornerback. There is a little bit of long speed concern, but nothing crazy. I mean, we're talking four five guy, right? We're not talking four six six, four six eight guy. You know, you're not running into Levi Wallace, Josh Norman territory as far as lack of long speed goes. But you know, with his ability to play in multiple different sets. I love the ability for him to say super sticky in man coverage, but also have the length and the reaction to play in zone. I think that there's a common, there's a common trait that what we do is we take long, tall athletes who are bad and we go, Oh, we're going to put them on a zone team. And I'm just, I'm not sure where that came from, but if we take someone who's six, two and you know, 195 pounds and runs a four, six, we're like, Oh, well, let's put him in the bills. You know, let's just do that, you know, and don't get me wrong. If Lamar Jackson's there in the sixth and we haven't taken a corner yet. Sure. Let's let's take a shot on someone who has the length and even though he's stiff, but Jalen Johnson checks all the boxes when it comes to being a professional corner. I don't think he's a super sexy option by any means, but I would feel very comfortable. I would breathe a sigh of relief. That would be my reaction to Jalen Johnson being the pick at 54. And even though that doesn't get me feeling a special, a special sort of way that drafting, you know, Cam Akers or JK Dobbins or Jonathan Taylor at that same pick would make me feel, I would feel relief. I would feel more secure. And so that's kind of my draft crush rolling that into Greg's pet question. No, that's a great answer. And it does tie into a little bit where my thinking is too, right? From this standpoint, and I don't know, Bruce, if I spend too much time listening to you and, and reading your tweets and your different articles as it relates to cornerback. For me, right, that's a piece where I think, all right, if I'm thinking with my head, that's probably the biggest hole that the Bills have on the roster right now at CB2. And they should go there at 54. They can get an RB2 in, in round three or round four, as you guys have said. But a guy's name that just keeps coming up for me is LaVisca Chenault Jr., as a possibility at pick 54. And it might be a little bit of a luxury after the Stefan Diggs trade. But when you think about it, okay, here's a player. And Joe, I think it was you that had an NFL comp for him to Sammy Watkins. You think of that dynamic type of playmaker. I look back to Brandon Bean's comments as someone that, all right, initially, right, if he was healthy, we're talking about him at 22. Now with the injuries, you're thinking to yourself, good gosh, is this a guy that could be available at 54? And it, it leads to a bigger question, I guess, and, and anybody that wants to jump in here. But think of those players, right, in the, the state of the country right now. You're not having those pro day visits. You're not having the players come in to visit your facility. You're not getting those medical checkups like you would have in the past. What, what is your tolerance level, I guess? And, and Chenault is just an example of that, but someone that could have been a, a first round pick, but because of those injury questions, there's a little bit of a leap of faith if you're going to take him. And what kind of stomach do you have for a pick like that, for that type of a prospect at pick 54? I will say that I think we have a little bit of information that Brandon Bean has said with the situation that we have where medical is not as in depth as it normally is because of everything that's going on with COVID that he has said that he is, unless he feels very confident about the injury situation, round two is probably not something that he would look at. Um, 
So, and that's another thing too, where you're, you're talking about like, I, I sometimes just wonder like, how do we answer these questions? Like, do we say what we think the bills are going to do based on the tea leaves that we read or what we would rather have do? Um, I would be interested. I mean, you talk about touchdown makers and I, I'd actually be interested in everybody's thoughts on this. If, if, if we can take a moment, LaVisca Chenault played wide receiver, right? So he would be the upgrade over Isaiah McKenzie wide receiver four. He would, he would mix in somewhere. Maybe he would be number two, number three, whatever, but it would be the top four in some order would be Diggs, Brown, Beasley, and then hypothetically Chenault. Is upgrading wide receiver four a really, really, really significant step back from upgrading running back two or, you know, touchdown makers, are they both at least comparable or is there a significant gap between the two of them? And, and Bruce, you, if you want to, you have your, your hand up here, if you want to go first. Absolutely. It is 100% RB two is going to get in this offense with the way that Sean McDermott has openly said, it's not good for there to be one guy. They're going to get at minimum 150 touches that wide receiver four might not get 40 touches. So I think that upgrading wide receiver four, I mean, if you want to, there's got to be a significant gap in talent there, but upgrading wide receiver four does not upgrade your offense as significantly as upgrading RB two. And I don't particularly think it's close. And I would say that the only counter, I think that's the right take. The only counter that I think you could look is more from an opportunity cost standpoint in that is LaVisca Chenault in the second and Zach Moss in the fourth better than Jonathan Taylor in the second and Van Jefferson in the fourth. I think you can maybe say that although in year one, there probably is a better benefit. I think that there's more long, that's where you get into the position premium and the long-term value pieces that with both Brown and Beasley being over 30, I think that wide receiver at 54 is more at play than what some fans think. I don't think it's the most likely. I'd rather see defensive end. I'd rather see cornerback. I'd rather see running back, but I can get behind it if there's an obvious value because I do think it sets that up. And I think there's some other pieces that the number of touches, where the distribution goes, you know, how dangerous was the eye candy of Isaiah McKenzie running those jet sweeps and that jet motion when it's Isaiah McKenzie, is there more gravity when it's LaVisca Chenault running across the field and distracting the safety? Does that open more things up? I think there's maybe some unknown pieces there where you could justify that it has a little bit more value in 2020. I think it's really hard to say that it wouldn't have more value than what the running back's going to do. My only counter would be maybe you can have the combination of still getting that RB2 you know, and, and it, it would be favorable if we got Cam Akers or Clyde Edwards Hilaire in the third, or you got a Zach Moss in the fourth, or Antonio Gibson in the fourth. Maybe that is lucky to get that kind of good fortune. But I think that we've seen that in history. It's more likely for that talent to fall at running back than it is for that talent to fall at maybe more premium positions. And Greg, I think you summed that up pretty well, at least as it relates to some of my thinking too, right? Well, if the, you know, if the RB2 is is not there that you have your eye on in the second round at pick 54, what other options do you have there? But along the same lines, Bruce, with that being said, I don't think this is something where the Bills can, you know, neglect the, the cornerback to position when it comes to that and really have to look at some of the options and you say to yourself, okay, you know, if we are going to take it, 
say any wide receiver or running back in the second round, it goes back to the earlier question of how comfortable would you be having to wait to get a cornerback and how aggressive could Brandon Bean go as far as jumping up? And, and Bruce, let me kind of parlay this one over to you as well as to Joe as it relates to the cornerbacks. And where where is that that tipping point, I guess you could say, right? Where do things fall off if the Bills were going to go with a playmaker in the second round? Because I know many fans look at it and think playmaker is is where, you know, the Bills need to make an addition, right? So many of the additions in the offseason on the defensive side of the ball. But with that being said, if they don't go cornerback in round two, how much further do you think they can wait before they can address the need? I think the last bastion for cornerback to day one is probably uh, Michael Ojemudia, and I think that's probably at his floor round four. I don't think – I think there's a, a reasonable chance he's not there in the fourth round. But after that, you're starting to get into the Reggie Robinsons of the world, the Lamar Jacksons of the world. You know, Cameron Dantzler is not somebody I have a particular affinity for. I think if you're going to take somebody who's, you know, six foot two plus and over 200 pounds and has really stiff hips, I'd much rather have Lamar Jackson in the sixth than Cameron Dantzler in the third, which is where I think he's going to go. And so for me, I think the last bastion that I'm comfortable with is Ojemudia and probably as low as that could possibly go is the fourth. I think if you wait past the third, for a corner, you're not getting a CB2 day one starter in 2020. At that point, you are eff- effectively punting that need. I think that's a – Can you agree with him? Yeah, I, I agree with him, and it's interesting. I uh, We worked on our final predictive top 100 for the Draft Network uh, yesterday, and it's going to come out on Monday on the draftnetwork.com, and we got hung up on a lot of cornerbacks. And there was guys that I was trying to sway the group towards that I think will go in the top 100 – which is basically the end of the third round. And we finally got to the point where we're like, how many cornerbacks go in the top 100? And we looked up the last two years and it was like 10 or 11 both years. And I think there's probably seven or eight guys that I think are reasonable day one starters at cornerback. Uh, now, the the issue here with this year compared to those other years is I think we could have four or five in the first round. And I think that certainly pushes up some of the talent. And um the need very, very strong in the NFL for cornerback. So I get nervous about waiting for it. Now, if Bryce Hall could be there at 86, which I think is possible based on his injury situation, and but he was recently cleared, but there's still no testing and you know teams aren't going to be super comfortable with that. Maybe that's the type of player that you move up for at 86. So if, if Brandon Bean is concerned with cornerback and wants to address it, I still think they're open to, to do a number of different things at 54 and that 86 is when you start really figuring out who you're comfortable uh, with. And then, all right, well, do we need to give up a fifth and a sixth or whatever we need to do to go make sure we get our guy if Brandon Bean sees the need like we do? I, Joe, I have a question for you. So I, we, we've kind of – I pegged you earlier with like Jeremy Chin or RB1 for you. And then um, we've spent a lot of time and, and I think everybody shares some level of concern – about CB2, whether or not you think you can platoon through, which is, you know, Greg said something similar to that. I, I have been sympathetic to that idea as well. So just, I, I'd like to know if everybody, I know Greg, I think is is going to be out of here relatively soon. I would be really interested in not predictive, but preference. What is everyone's preference if you were calling the shot at 54? Because for me, like Joe, I, I'm interested for you, 
if you've got Jeremy Chin, RB1, and you know whatever CB has a chance of being there at 54, that is a day one starter for you. Which of those three would be the one that you would pull the trigger on? Because I think we we all talk about like we we say I get why this is important. I feel it's important too. But you know I think the depth of what's available in the third, fourth, fifth rounds and stuff like that, and and you guys would have far more informed opinions about that than me. I would be really interested in everybody's preference for what the Bills would do at fifty four. I like the question, Nick, and I and I. I appreciate you asking good questions in terms of not necessarily challenging, but bringing up things that I've said. And it, the reality is I, I have kind of lend, I've, I've given myself the opportunity to be okay with a lot of different things. And what I come back to is that I think the bills in terms of what I want them to do, I just want them to get a good football player. And I feel like I do this every single draft where early on I get married to different needs and ideas and players. And then the off season progresses and those diminish. And then you look at the roster and you're like, ah, just get a good player. And, and, and that's, I think from a perspective of, of preference, that's where I'm, that's why I'm open-minded to so many different ideas where I could, I could give you a, a great pitch on Jeremy Pitchin and Jonathan Taylor, and I could be okay with an offensive lineman. And if it's a valuable enough receiver, I can get behind that. So I'm open to a lot of different ideas. Now, when you when you say, okay, what exactly specifically do you want to happen? Well, I think if you tell me that the 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 level of, of caliber of prospect was the same across the board and I could just pick a position and not being mindful of what's left on the board or anything like that, I think that the the need that's the biggest on the team that would present value is cornerback. So that that's what I would want. I would if the talent was if, if there's the same caliber of prospect then I want the cornerback yeah. more than anything. That's that's actually exactly what I want to know. Like all things being equal, like for me, it's hard because like I want to tackle because I want to move Cody Ford inside. I don't, you know, just put a pause on whatever the Bills want are doing, right? I want like Nick wants Cody Ford to move inside. So like part of me is like, damn, if we get a tackle at 54 that there is like, there's no question. This guy is an exterior offensive lineman. He is not going to go inside. Then you're forcing your hand where you're moving forward inside. And now Feliciano is trade bait and all of that, or Spencer Long is trade bait, all that kind of stuff. Right. So it's like, I kind of get like, do I, am I in love with that idea? No. But like, is that ultimately what I want the most? Maybe. Or do I want, like, if all things again are the same, do I want a defensive end to take Trent Murphy out of rotation? And he's just, we can move on from his money. And like, maybe I, I I'm, I'm into that. Um, but yeah, th- I appreciate you answering that. Greg, do you want to give us yours? We might have lost Greg at this point, so he no, can I'm, jump in I'm after me. Here. And I can do this to kind of close out some of my thoughts. I, I think that sure. there's – it's hard for me to go beyond the positions that we've looked at. And I, I think, you know, we've thrown out some different ones. And, and Nick, your thoughts on, like I said, an off, a crazy offensive tackle value that you just can't deny. I still hope for that. Not offensive tackle, but just an obvious talent that you can't deny, even if it's not at an obvious position. Of need, I know we've debated on, um, you know, the Jeremy Chin, Kyle Duggar discussion. What if Grant Delpit falls? You know, I, I I want it to be just an obvious, easy pick. That oh my gosh, we can't believe this guy's there. Now, ideally, 
that's Jeff Gladney or that's, you know, wh- whoever it happens to be. And it's also Yudor Grossmatos. And it happens to be at a really valuable position. I think the odds are exactly what Joe brought up, that it's more likely that obvious value is at running back. That coincides with a great need for here. But my preference would be that one of the top end first round grade cornerbacks falls. And that's there. It's hard for me, you know, whether however you feel about Trent Murphy having Hughes, Addison, Murphy flexibility from Quentin Jefferson and a second year from Daryl Johnson, it's hard to say that that's not better than Josh Norman and, and Levi Wallace. So if you're going to get value from there, plus the premium position, you know I want it to be offensive tackle, wide or uh, cornerback, you know defensive end, maybe even wide receiver. I want to take advantage of the value that's there at these positions. Um, but I think it's hard to argue that you wouldn't get the most bang for your buck if we if I had my perfect scenario. It's that one of the top end corners falls there. So um, it's been awesome talking with you guys. I do have to jump off here, but this is a, exactly what I think Bills fans are looking for is, is having different opinions from people that they hear. And it's awesome being able to talk with you guys to go through these things. So it uh, it should be a lot of fun. No, thanks so much, Greg. Appreciate you joining. And and I was going to jump in here too, Nick, to that question, right? And and usually for myself, right, I try to keep my take somewhat reasonable as it relates to the bills and not to put it in a position where you're, you know, overreacting to certain pieces. But, you know, as I look at it now, it truly is a bit like, hey, this, this team is in win now mode. And uh, Joe and I were talking the other day about it. Traditionally, when you say win now, it's like, well, a, a coach is on the hot seat and the team has, you know, been struggling for years. For me, it's a little bit more of, you know, you look at the talent on the roster, you look at the season they had in 2019. Yes, I'll take into account that Tom Brady is now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And for me, it keeps coming back to and saying, okay, that running back to can provide a major upgrade for the Bills. And while Frank Gore maybe got off to a decent start to the 2019 season, I mean, he finished with 3.6 yards per carry. I think down the stretch, he was he was barely around two and a half yards per touch. And when you look at that and see an, an obvious opportunity for an upgrade for the Bills, to have Devin Singletary paired with somebody like a J.K. Dobbins, to me, that's the type of piece that would make the Buffalo Bills offense dynamic. And of course, you've got the addition of Stefan Diggs. But if you have that pair at running back in the backfield, I would look at that and say, okay, maybe Josh Allen doesn't have to run as much as he does. And, you know, every time he takes a hit, I, I cringe a bit, right, as you, you want him to stay healthy and continue to develop. But with that said, as Joe mentioned earlier, right, if you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 touches this season, that is the piece that makes the Bills offense, at least in my mind, more dynamic than they were before. And if it is one of those top three or four running backs, I would be very happy with with any of those guys as the pick at number 54. Bruce, you want to say yours? All uh, things I've, being, all I've, things I've being gone, equal? I've, I've gone on record. It's it's corner for me if all it's things corner. were equal. Now, I, if we pick a running back, I'm going to be fine with it. Um, and I'm going to be, I'm going to completely understand the 150 touches that need to be upgraded. And I'll probably nod and smile, assuming it's not a crazy reach for a running back. I mean, for goodness sake, if we take Zach Moss at 54, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like, okay, well, you know, probably not the best value there. Um, you know, if it was someone like Michael Warren at 54, I'd be like, okay, um, I get the need, but no, but overall, all things can be considered. I would take the corner. Hmm. 
Does anyone believe that Bruce would be that calm if they took Zach Moss at 54 or Michael Warren? His, his, after, after Did you, anybody else notice like on. how his voice went up an octave? Probably not the best value. <laughs> <laughs> That's me trying to control my blood pressure after what happened earlier in this pod when I when I was uh, discussed about having opposing takes and then blindly trusting everything that Brandon Bean does. So yeah. uh, that's me trying to control it by going up an octave. I I will say, it, I, again, I don't do the homework and I'm not a draft Nick. So my opinion here is purely from I'm looking at the Bills and I'm looking at what I want the Bills to do. So I want more offense. I want more touchdowns. But I have been just so impressed and convinced with the descriptions of running backs who are going to be available largely through the mock draft uh, thing that we did with Joe and, and Bruce with running backs that are going to be available later who can really contribute like LaMichael P. Ryan. Like I am I am all about it. Antonio Gibson, like I'm I'm interested in these guys later. So that makes me feel comfortable moving that need down and at 54 an absolute win in Nick Bat's opinion would be a tackle it it absolutely would be a no questions asked tackle because for me we have to protect Josh Allen if he is going to progress and right now the offensive line has continuity and they're going to be back for a second year and there's an expected improvement there and, and guys were playing hurt and I get all of that I also imagine that all of those things could be true, and it's a relatively similar product in the second year that they're all together. So if we were to get a high-caliber tackle prospect that was not a candidate to kick inside, and it forced Cody Ford inside, I believe that that would be a significant upgrade on the right side of the line. We would still be able to address RB2 later, which I think is something everybody has an appetite for. And, you know, CB2... I am I'm putting up the white flag and acknowledging that, you know, uh, we're going to platoon through and see what happens. And if it, if we get burnt because people just throw away from Trey White all game long, every game, that's a mistake on my end. But for me, an absolute ideal win would be a tackle at 54, because I think if you get a tackle later than that, the pressure or the expectation that they are going to start right away is is significantly impacted. Do you think there's a similar- Nick? That's a no. Go ahead, Joe. I was going to say I feel like it's almost like a similar situation to corner and offensive tackle in that what we think should happen versus what Sean McDermott's planning on happening are very different. And you know, I've I've had to convince myself that no matter what I think about this cornerback situation, it feels like McDermott's okay with it. And just as much as we'd all think it's low hanging fruit to move Cody Ford to guard. Uh, and he'll be a better football player, and, and the Bills have a chance to upgrade two spots by getting an offensive tackle. Like I almost feel like there's this part of us that has to accept that they think he's a right tackle. And so I get nervous about that idea just because I think they're going to extend Dawkins and they're going to give Ford you know, a couple more seasons to prove he's a right tackle. I, t- I totally agree. I, I, this is not what I think is going to – it's not predictive at all. Yeah. This is, it, it's just absolutely – if I was making the call – and and just being a guy who only who primarily pays attention to the bills rather than to the draft and the prospects that is the area of significant need because allen already is exposes himself to hits he already exposes himself to hits with the style of play 
the last thing we need is or the thing that I feel we, we, we would benefit from the most. Again, being super, if I'm Bills focused, I'm super Josh Allen focused, is protect him as much as possible in in the regular, you know, in the regular down and distance and give him as much protection, as much pocket, um, you know, stability as possible. So that's, uh, again, I don't expect it at all. I would be overjoyed, but I absolutely yeah. don't think that it will happen because I believe similar to you guys, they think he's a tackle and I mourn that. But if it was me, that would be what I would be overjoyed about. It's just so interesting so let me- that you've kind of waved the white flag at at corner and I've waved it at offensive tackle. And I don't know that <laughs> yeah. there's any good reason for that to be the case, but we, we've kind of both come to that individually. Yeah. Well, and let me ask this follow-up question with it too. And before we wrap up, because I realize we can go with this like all day, but right. When you talk about these two positions, you talk about cornerback to where let's say our floor is Levi Wallace, right? Now we've seen two seasons of Levi Wallace. He comes in as an undrafted free agent, so I think the expectations were much different for him than someone like Cody Ford, right? And and right now, let's just say that's our floor with him. And in both situations, right, you've got aging vets with a Josh Norman and EJ Gaines potentially at cornerback too, and Ty Inseki and Daryl Williams potentially at right tackle. But do we have any more confidence, at least confidence maybe is the wrong word, but optimism that someone like Cody Ford can continue to make a jump in year two, right, as you see him developing as a rookie, as opposed to someone like a Levi Wallace, who, okay, two years into the league, is this a guy that we've kind of, we know what he is at this point, but we can at least have some more optimism for Ford, at least as it relates to being a right tackle. Great question. I think the probability of Cody Ford getting better and being a reasonable right tackle is higher than the probability of Levi Wallace becoming a better athlete and being the answer at CB2. I think that when it comes to that, you know, I, I, I went on record saying I thought Cody Ford was a guard and, and you know, was uh, was uh, <clears throat> I had some robust dialogue with Bill's Mafia about that last <laughs> last year. But that doesn't mean it's completely impossible. It means I means I thought it was improbable for him to do it. But they I mentioned after the draft that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott saw a tackle with similar RAS score to Cody Ford in Darrell Williams. And so. They saw him be have an all pro season at right tackle. So they're probably thinking he's a tackle. Like like Joe said, I think I'm waving the white flag. They think he's a tackle at this point. So if I'm predicting things, I'm predicting that in addition, now this is where I'm starting to line up with Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean. I think there's a higher probability that Cody Ford is a right tackle than there is that Levi Wallace is a CB2. Joe, do you agree with that? I would love to get your take before we wrap things up. I 100% agree with that. And I think sometime after the draft in May, I'm going to do a podcast that's completely committed to the belief and optimism as to why Cody Ford can be successful at right tackle. I think there's enough to talk about there. Isn't it interesting that both of them are – the issues with both of them is are athletic – based, right? I mean, totally different responsibilities, but Levi Wallace, not a top end athlete. And that comes back to haunt him in coverage. And Cody Ford has slow feet, right? So his kick slide isn't good enough. He's long and he has to use his length, you know, probably better, but his, his kick slide's not great. His, his, his feet, uh, you know, mirroring guys aren't great. He, he gets taken advantage of one way or another inside outside. And, you know, those are athletic, both of them, are athletic problems. 
So um, I'm, yeah. I would not have a guess. I would not have a, 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 a an expectation uh, based on what I know. I would not have had an expectation that that there would be much optimism for Cody Ford to get better. So that's actually news to me that you guys would think that. I'll say this, not to give too much away here. Does Cody Ford need to be 330 pounds? That, that's my first question. Can we yeah. lose 15 and, and get <laughs> and get some more mobility? Yeah, I actually so, think we, I think I absolutely think we can. And I think that the thing with offensive tackles is as opposed to corners is that when you have slower feet as an offensive tackle, you can, you can drop a little bit of weight. You can also balance that out with your length, but when it goes yeah. to corner and you have slow feet, your length isn't going to save you. And so having a long corner is great when it comes to contesting catches and, and winning at the catch point, playing in zone coverage, things like that. Length is great. Being able to play and press and be able to have the correct jams to be able to, you know, stop routes early on. But when it comes to length, length as a tackle, I would argue, is markedly more important than length as a corner. And so because of that, I think that there that's one of the things that gives you optimism, even though Nick correctly draws the correlation between athletic issues with Cody Ford and athletic issues with Levi Wallace. I think Cody Ford having the requisite length gives him more optimism than having, you know, Levi Wallace have pretty good length. 34 inch arms. Let's drop 15 pounds. Let's work on our set points and become a better pass blocker. There's a course for that to happen. Yep. Levi Wallace is maxed. He is. That's great. That's really good information. Good. A good question, Anthony. Listen, Nick, the longer I hang out with you, the, uh, the more comfortable I feel asking different questions. So learning from the best. And obviously, as we talk about this, just, uh, you know, we talk about the the best of the best in Buffalo Bills podcast coming together for this roundtable. I mean, we're coming up on on 90 minutes right now, so that's probably the point where we should wrap it up. But uh, again, I want to thank Nick and Nolan, Bruce Bruce Nolan, Nick Badalano for joining us on the podcast today. Joe Marino from Locked On Bills and the Draft Dudes podcast, as well as the DraftNetwork.com, and of course Greg Thompson from Cover One. Make sure you're following all of these guys and the great work that they do. It's going to be a fun and interesting week for all Buffalo Bills fans. Always appreciate you guys tuning in, and as always, go Bills.